Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings, you're listening to Movie Oubliette, episode 110, a continental circumferencing podcast with me, Dan, forlornly waiting for the rain to stop to liberate my car from the front lawn in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, forlornly waiting for rain to start in Cambridge, UK. Mm. In this podcast, we deliberate intently over genre films, horror, sci-fi and fantasy, because we love point of view shots from ferocious hunters. Hello, Conrad. <laughs> Hello, Dan. So, is the car still stuck on it's your still lawn? Stuck. It's still stuck. It's been oh, very no. wet, and uh, it, it's kind of, it's, it, there's no point trying to move it, because it's probably just going to get stuck again. So, it's just a waiting game at this point. Oh, my. This is amazing. This is quite <laughs> the saga. So, we talked about this on our Minnesota. We did, yes. But, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, it's quite amazing how you've managed to get your car stuck. I don't. Im- I never thought it rained that much in Australia. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is the time of year. It's spring. Okay. And meanwhile, in England, which is famous for rain, it hasn't rained for months and months and months and months. I had a brief shower during the Minnesota, ah, yes, um, that's but that's right. all gone. And it's it's bone dry out there again. So, yeah, it's quite... Odd. Mm. Climate's changing, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. really is. Now, excitingly, Dan and I are not alone today. We are joined by a writer-director, video essayist extraordinaire, and good friend of the pod. It's Serge Bernardchuk of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Serge. Hey. hey. Hi. How's it going? (laughs) Very well, yes. It's great to see you again after Iconicon. Is it raining in Seattle? Uh, Weirdly enough, it's not. We've also been going through a bizarrely dry summer. Mm. We got our first rain in weeks uh, last night, though, so I'm hoping it will... I'm a big fan of um, cold, wet, rainy days. Um, (laughs) Haven't gotten my fill yet since I moved here a year ago to Seattle. Uh, Looking forward to uh, the city living up to its uh, stereotype soon. Yes. Yeah. 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 Sure. Sure. But it is great to be back on this, my fifth episode of the pod (laughs) wow is it fifth already yeah no is that more (laughs) years than we've been operating that's amazing well it's because i my first i and i was doing the math too i was like you've only been broadcasting for four years it's because i started on year zero (laughs) yeah and you were also on our 100th episode as well oh yeah 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 the last thing (laughs) so is that six yeah i guess so (laughs) (laughs) So what are you working on on your channel at the moment? What can we look forward to? Uh, well, I should have another video coming out uh, with hopefully within a week or two of this episode, which it's called Spitballing the Future of Cinema, mm. uh, where it's, you know, it, it's kind of fun to work on a video that's not quite so research heavy because uh, I'm just predicting the future and who knows if it'll be true or not. <laughs> mm. It's an interesting topic for sure, because yeah. uh, certainly in my neck of the woods, the cinema is going bankrupt, which is very disappointing. Mm. 
the challenge of writing this particular episode is um, cataloging all the doom and gloom and then trying to figure out how to like not leave it at that. It's like, well, these are five mm. awful things I've noticed about the industry. Don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll find a way to make it entertaining. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, Conrad, so uh, what's in the mailbag today? Well, we had a lovely long letter from one of our patrons, Ozma, big fan of the show and of Return to Oz in particular. Yes. And uh, she got in touch about Waterworld and she said, there's something that's always amused me in this film. It's the fact that the bad guys are called the smokers. I feel like there's a very 90s sort of message, like smoking is bad, so the bad guys are the smokers and they smoke cigarettes all the time. But yeah. where do they find their cigarettes? It's Waterworld. <laughs> Everything is supposed to be damp. But apparently, even after a jet ski stunt, they have dry cigarettes in their pockets. I don't know why it always amused me. That's very true. That's very true. It is. And these are like, what, so, like 200-year-old cigarettes? Surely they taste disgusting. <laughs> yeah, they must do. Must do. Uh, when we ask people to name their favourite box office bomb in honour of Waterworld, Eddie Coulter said, Mmm, so many to choose. Some of my favourites. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. One of my favourites. I love it. The Thirteenth Warrior. Oh. Hudson Hawk. Cutthroat Island, which came up while we were talking mm -hmm, about Waterworld. Mm -hmm. John Carter, not of Mars, apparently. And The Black Cauldron. Oh, right. Yeah, I, I actually really like John Carter. I think it's a great movie. I remember enjoying it, yeah, and just thinking, this is just a normal summer blockbuster. What's the problem? Yeah, I know. I think the problem with John Carter is that it took so long to finally adapt. It did. That oh, directors yeah. had already been strip mining the story. Uh, for a century, that by the time it came out, it just felt like it kind of been there, done that. Yeah, it's true. A lot of people looked at it and thought, hey, this is Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. <laughs> I liked it. So did I. <laughs> In the same genre, Chrissy said, Titan AE is deemed a bomb, but I really liked it. Yeah, that movie's it's not bad. Uh, some of the visual effects date, mm. like, quite badly. Because it's, it's a combination of, of 2D and 3D. And the 3D stuff is a bit jarring. I don't know. I it's that it's that era of animation where it doesn't quite mesh. It's the same with um Treasure Planet. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which Joseph Gordon Levitt's in. Yeah. Some of the animation just doesn't quite look right. No. It's a Don Bluth movie though, Titan AE, and I do tend to like Don Bluth stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the news that we had Tom Woodruff Jr. as our special guest, Stephen <laughs> Noden said, OMG, I can't believe this. I'm the biggest ADI fan. Tom is an absolute legend. Well. Can't disagree with that. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed the episode. Yeah. And uh, Alec Gillis may show up at some point on the pod too, which is even more exciting. So Ooh, we'll have yes. the pair. Yes. And, and finally, we heard of one surge of cold crash pictures. <laughs> I don't know. Is it awkward for me to read this back to you? <laughs> uh, well, I don't have it pulled up. So if you want it read, you're going to have to do it. <laughs> okay. To steal myself. Well, 
Well, part of me always imagines that the fun part of the fun for you is imagining me in my British accent reading out some of your Americanisms. So <laughs> let's let's see how this goes. Kinda shocked at how watchable the thing with two heads is. It's a fun mix of the craziest shit on paper and playing it completely straight. And I think it does a better job of getting me to suspend my disbelief than most Marvel films. Which <laughs> Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I like the claim. <laughs> I liked it with this important qualifier. I liked it for what it is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 I think I did too. I mean, it, it was just insane. I mean, I couldn't recommend it because I, mm. I just didn't think, you know, just technically, I just didn't think it was a very good film, but I didn't hate it. <laughs> yeah. It's an oddity for sure, especially with with how much runtime that car chase is. <laughs> I definitely yeah. picked up my phone at some point during that car chase. And like, <laughs> I was scrolling through stuff and then I look up and they're like, there's still, is this the same car chase? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. pretty amazing. But that's, that's just the 70s, I guess. <laughs> they mm. just love their car chases and yeah. Southern sheriffs getting annoyed. Mm. Well... I guess we ought to pick something to talk about today. So uh, Serge is our special guest who is allowed in the oubliette because you've had the training. <laughs> yep. Would you like to make your way on over there? I would, yeah. Okay, okay, here we go. Okay, oh wow, it's like some ruined building. Oh, it's a church. I see like stained glass and stuff. Oh. Is that a baby crying? Weird. This is a mess. Okay, okay, I've got the film. It's buried in some rubble. Okay. Okay, I better get out of here. The baby cries are starting to sound like a wolf. <laughs> Weird. Hey, wolves don't kill people. That's a myth. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> oh, welcome back. I thought I saw some red eyes on the stairs there for a moment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you have for us today, Sage? I have the 1981 American police procedural horror thriller Wolfen, Ooh. starring oh. Albert Finney, Diane Venora, Edward James Olmos, Gregory Hines, Tom Noonan, and Dick O'Neill, based on the novel by Whitley Stryber, directed by Michael Wadley, with a screenplay by David Ayer, Michael Wadley, and uncredited work by Eric Roth, according to IMDb. Ooh. So, what story did they come up with? Well, when a New York billionaire real estate tycoon, who definitely isn't modeled after Donald Trump, is violently <laughs> murdered in Battery Park alongside his wife and voodoo-practicing Haitian bodyguard, hard-boiled detective Dewey Wilson comes out of early retirement to solve the case. Are the culprits well-financed terrorists, leftist nepotism babies, or ancient shape-shifting <laughs> animal spirits that may or may not be gods? Find out in this oft-forgotten, not technically a werewolf movie, werewolf movie, in a year that just so happened to be chock full of them, Wolfen. Mm. Okay, after the break. Yeah. And we're back to talk about Wolfen, the werewolf movie from 1981 that isn't actually a werewolf movie. I had seen this one before on VHS. I was a teenager. I was lapping up 80s werewolf movies. I watched this one. It wasn't a werewolf movie. I was deeply disappointed in it and have forgotten it ever since. Serge, had you seen this movie before? I hadn't, but it's been on my watch list forever because... 
I have known at some point I'd read that 1981 was the year of the werewolf movie where there were four. And I had only seen one of them, which is the most famous of them. I'm an American werewolf in London. Mm-hmm. But then the other three were Wolfen, uh, The Howling by Joe Dante, and Full Moon High, <laughs> I think it's called. Yes. Right. But anyway, these three had been on my watch list forever. Uh, but no, I had not seen Wolfen yet. I was happy to finally get to it. Uh-huh. How about you, Dan? Uh, no, it's been on my watch list for a long time. And I, I bought the DVD like maybe a year or two ago. It's in <laughs> my giant pile of oubliette movies I had yet to watch. And you can't see this, listeners, but my dog's <laughs> trying to get as much attention as possible. They might be able to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> there is a wolf on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> but... um. Yeah, the cover of Wolfman, I mean, it looks amazing. There's like some sort of wolf-like creature, um, and it's got the writing of Wolfman's all like scratchy. It looks like a very visceral, violent movie, which this movie is to some respects. But yes, not really any werewolves in it. I don't have some questions. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, so I guess just going straight to the end, really, big spoilers here. They're they're not werewolves. They're just wolves. They're ancient wolf animal spirits. Yeah. That can apparently teleport. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, to the penthouse suite. And they disappear as well. Yep. Um, So they are more spiritual beings that was certainly my yeah takeaway yeah but they're not native americans imbued into wolves or anything they are a separate species or entity right ancient wolf species and the reason that has to be asked is because that's the working theory of the main character for like a quarter of the film is like are these native american day laborers turning into wolves at night and murdering people and anyway, the answer winds up being no. <laughs> no. <laughs> They're just Native American day laborers. <laughs> yeah, you can understand why Albert Finney's Dewey might come to this conclusion, because at one point, Edward James Olmos, playing the character Holt, looks up at the moon, goes to the beach, strips naked, and makes paw prints in the sand, laps up water whilst making very suggestive thrusting motions, yes. and then prowls and chases Dewey across the beach, and then just says, it's all in the head, and then walks away. Yeah, <laughs> I was a little disappointed. I thought, oh, here we go. Here's the transformation scene that I've been waiting for. Yes. <laughs> but no. <laughs> no, the Native Americans are a red herring. Although they do, just before the beginning of the third act, explain exactly what the history of the wolf and is and where they come from and that they hmm. predate modern society that at one point the Native Americans, I believe, lived in harmony with them, in balance. Sure. And it's only because of Western civilization eating up territories that they have come back to protect their hunting grounds. And, I mean, they're equal opportunity killers. At one point, they kill somebody who is definitely not Donald Trump. (laughs) And the next victim is a homeless person. Yeah. So trying to figure out how these wolves pick their targets is a struggle, in my opinion. (laughs) Mm. Because they go after this billionaire real estate developer who is, I guess, trying to put 
a luxury high rise or a series of luxury high rises where they currently reside, which is a ruined church in a ruined neighborhood, which the whole block is busy being demolitioned building by building. And so they go after the billionaire, which I'm no real estate lawyer, but I'm pretty sure the deal can still proceed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Even if a real estate mogul is killed in a park. Mm. But then they also target random homeless people who are in the area. And then, of course, they venture into the city going after every member of this police squad who are investigating the billionaire's murder. And that's the plot is the police trying to figure out who killed this billionaire in Battery Park. And the wolves keep on zeroing in. They're not really getting a whole lot closer. Well, I guess they're kind of getting close. Like they visit the church, which seems to be these wolves' base of operation. But they're not going to book wolves. (laughs) And they're supernatural wolves. So it's not like they're going to call animal control and evict them. These police officers (laughs) pose no threat to these wolves. And yet these wolves are targeting each individual member of the force one by one, which eats up about half the runtime. So anyway, just to circle back to the point of like motivation, it just kind of feels like whenever they need a death scene or an attack scene, one just happens. Pretty much. Yeah. And I didn't really understand like how intelligent they were as well, because if they're intelligent to track down the police force, that's like human intelligence. But then I don't really get their motivations for a lot of the other stuff that they do. No. And I mean, at the end of the movie, there is a standoff between Dewey and the Wolfen, whereby Dewey, I mean, you were saying, Serge, that the deal will go ahead with or without the property developer. I think the deal will also go ahead even if Dewey destroys the model of it that's in the property developer's office. Yep. But he seems to think that symbolically destroying the model will convey to the Wolfen your territory is safe. We will no longer touch it. But I I don't think that's his decision. I think it's completely (laughs) above his pay grade. Yeah. Mm. But to your point, Dan, it seems to suggest a level of intelligence that is baffling. Yeah. Are these real wolves as well in the movie? They are, yeah. I mean, you finally see one. I think it's an hour and 38 minutes in, you finally see a wolf. I wrote it down too. (laughs) Yeah. It's slow, this movie. And when you do see them, they look like they're some sort of effect. I mean, they are scary. They are. So kudos for that. I didn't think they were that scary. Did you not? I don't know. (laughs) Well, the big fluffy white one, maybe not. Uh He just looked kind of cuddly. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't know. I kind of wanted something a bit more, especially the first appearance of a wolf. I just thought, oh, it's just a wolf. Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely taken aback by that, too. It's the exact same reaction. A bit disappointed. (laughs) I expected something a little bit more ferocious looking, maybe some more teeth or something, or or (laughs) blood, or I don't know, something a little bit more terrifying. It looked quite normal to me. Yeah. But, I mean, I wouldn't like to meet it on the stairs in a derelict church. No, of course (laughs) not. I mean, neither would I. but (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I don't know. I expected something... A little bit more. Like Razorback, the movie Razorback with the pig and that, that's terrifying. Yeah. But it was also huge and definitely not a real pig. But yeah, these being real wolves, I don't know. Not so terrifying. Well, either their teeth are razor sharp or in this universe, human beings are just like rag dolls because <laughs> as soon as they launch themselves at people, bits of them just come off. Yeah. Like hands. I know. Heads. Yeah. There's a lot of shots of a wolf leaping at someone and then 
there's a cutaway and then you see just a body part flying through the air <laughs> yeah. as if it limb you know, flying as if it were a wax sculpture <laughs> but I, I i think there's only really one scene where you see contact yeah um, so that scene outside with the old guy um and the car explodes at some point oh yeah um but that's the only scene and his head gets completely just straight off yeah. but every other scene you don't because they don't show the wolf it's always just like a point of view of the camera rushing towards the character. Yep. And then suddenly the character's either, I mean, ripped to shreds or like, yeah, limbs flying. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of wanted to see more contact. Yeah. That final scene with, is he the police commissioner or a politician? I, I can't I remember. Can't, I can't remember. Captain, commissioner. So I think Dewey's a captain actually, but I, I, yeah. Yeah. It kind of reminded me of American Werewolf in London, which came out the same year. I'm not sure if it was released before this, but yeah. Finale in which person's head comes off and bounces off of a car. It seemed a little bit familiar and obvious. Mm. Yeah. One of the things that this film is well known for is the wolf vision sequences, which are these, I don't know, they're sort of pixelated thermal imaging it in no way to me suggests the vision of an organic creature. It reminds me of predator vision, which yeah. makes perfect sense because it's technological. It's like a, something he's seeing through his visor. It's not actually his natural vision. And I'm sorry, I thought it looked like crap. I didn't. I, every time they cut to it, I was just like, oh, God, this ugly shit again. <laughs> and there's a lot of it, too, yeah. uh, for POV shots that because it's a lot of steady cam work and a lot of luma cranes apparently being used extensively to create these incredibly impressive and dexterous prowling scenes. But all of it just ruined with hideous garish thermal imaging yeah so how did they achieve that it almost looked like negative colors almost first of all i think they shot all the point of view shots during the day mm -hmm. even if the scene took place at night and then they like solarized it and flipped some of the colors around right, right. yeah i found that confusing because it looked like day yeah yeah i didn't know what time of day it was <laughs> like because a lot of the shots are quite long extensive yeah there's a lot of it yeah and i thought oh it's daytime and then it would cut to like the real vision yeah and yeah not so daytime so very confusing and i would agree conrad keyword here ugly yeah. really ugly mm -hmm. just not nice to look at no. the other thing that took me out of the movie was they would often uh, and i've been trying to figure out how to articulate this but they it's clearly not a point of view shot that they have solarized that they've handed to us with this point of view effect slapped onto it it's like it'll be a point of view shot from one of the wolves but it'll be like at eye level all of a sudden and with like a special lens so this is clearly just something that they shot on set mm. not thinking that it was going to be a point of view shot and then they just hand it over to the effects team to turn it into a point of view shot sure if that makes sense yeah like then like they're cutting between them but even if there's like only one animal Anyway, I just didn't think that the sequence of point of view shots was planned out especially well. No, it's like those movies where a character's supposed to be watching surveillance footage of something that's happened previously, uh, but it's yes. actually yeah. footage from the film and it's edited and it's the sequence you watched. <laughs> yes. And you think, yeah. God, for God's sake, just film a bloody surveillance angle. Mm. Yep, exactly. Mm. I hate it. Can we sort of backtrack and talk about the plot of this movie? Because it is quite complex. Because when they're sort of 
uh, investigating. They go through like terrorism theories, and they have a lot of wacky theories. Yeah, yeah gang warfare, uh, mutilations. Uh, yeah, it's- to, to be honest, like. <laughs> Ancient spirit wolves is not the craziest <laughs> idea that they suggest. No. Because the very first thing they do say is terrorists. Mm. And then they decide it's this young woman who I guess she's she's some sort of blood relative to the billionaire who's been killed. And she's like got these radical left politics. And when they're interrogating her, Dewey even has a throwaway line. He's like, oh, you know, we're the fascist pigs who brought her in for questioning. (laughs) And she sort of admits, she doesn't quite admit to the murder, but she has some sort of enigmatic line where it's like, this wasn't a killing, it was an execution. Mm. And then everybody like gets quiet. And then the tech who's monitoring the polygraph in essence that she's hooked up to He's like, oh, she's lying. She didn't do it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And then there's talk of, like, plastic weapons that don't leave a residue behind. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that comes from Gregory Hines' character, Coroner Whittington. I really liked his character. Yeah. It's a shame you don't get more from him. He's very funny in this movie, Mm. which you need because the rest of it is, is pretty serious. I mean, Albert Finney is funny as Dewey, but he's pretty much a bog-standard world-weary detective, isn't he? I mean, they're always divorced with an alcoholism problem, and Mm. they've seen it all before, and they've been laid off, but now they've been brought back in for one more case, and yeah, it's pretty tropey. It is. I definitely thought they picked the wrong protagonist. Mm. I think Detective Dewey, he's just got nothing interesting going on. He's not even an especially good detective. No. Like, how do the Native Americans get brought into the story? He's just like, oh, maybe it was this group of Native Americans that I have arrested previously for petty crimes. Maybe they did it. He has no reason to suspect them. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. (laughs) But he just just starts interrogating them. (laughs) Yeah. Just laziness or racism, quite possibly. Yeah. What's interesting, though, is the bridge building aspect with the Native Americans that I'm not aware of. Yeah, that comes out as a statement that most of the bridges and most of the skyscrapers in New York were built by Native Americans. And I looked this up. It turns out that it's actually true that, for example, of the 500 men who built the World Trade Center, the original one, 200 of them were mohawks, apparently. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. There was a whole exhibition about it in New York in 2017. I mean, obviously, at the time, there were all these theories about, well, Native American men have got this sort of spiritual ability to walk along steel girders and not fall off. But, I mean, it wasn't true. If you looked at the accident rates, they were just as likely to die as anyone else. It's just that it was a highly paid, thankless work. Mm. That was the only opportunities that that many of them had. So Yeah, I really did quite enjoy the setting of this movie, the sort of New York setting and, and the bridges and the gentrification of uh, neighborhoods. And that was actually quite interesting. And I guess thematically, the whole sort of nature versus urbanization or development. I like what it was trying, but I feel like in the end, it was just kind of everything was just kind of muddied and messy it watered down i wanted it to go harder on all of those angles Mm. but instead it was like let's see what this cop's latest theory is (laughs) okay so i wrote down time stamps it was a pet peeve of mine throughout the film how long it took them to figure out wolves were doing this (laughs) because like pretty much any mortician any coroner can distinguish a stab wound from an animal bite yeah yeah you'd hope (laughs) and uh 
it was 38 minutes and four victims into the film before they figure out that a non-human was involved in the killings through like hair analysis. Uh, And then it was 51 minutes before they identified it as wolf hair. Mm -hmm. It was one hour before they realized that they were bite marks. But of course, the very first thing when he hears bite marks, he's like, human cannibalism? And it's like, no, Dewey. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. And I don't think it's till, I have written down one hour and 27 minutes in the cut that I watched where someone on the investigation team is cornered by a wolf. Mm. (laughs) I mean, you know, there's not much of a movie if they figure out it's wolves within like, 20 minutes but mm. still i was like you're still not you still don't know <laughs> yeah I don't know. did the wolf guy get killed so the wolf expert yes that worked in the zoo yeah yeah tom noonan yeah he bought the farm that was one scene i really didn't enjoy because i believe they show footage which is unsimulated footage of wolves being shot and killed yeah i didn't like that at all yeah i think my catch of the film is different because hmm. i don't think i saw him like he he jets away on that scooter in the middle of the night and then that's it and then i think there's some talk of him being missing huh yeah i think there's just another wolf launches and person flies off bike and that's it oh, okay it's not really a terribly gory i mean like you were saying you were expecting to see a little bit more wolf savaging going on there isn't really much until the police chief's head comes off yeah really. yeah, yeah there isn't yeah a lot of bodies being found or like bodies being thrown but yeah you don't see a lot yeah there's at the beginning of the film when the police are they take a look at each of the three victims and they're standing over the wife of the real estate tycoon and they're talking like look at that nearly took her head clean off they're describing a very gory scene but we don't see it the camera's Mm. looking at the cops yeah which i thought was kind of interesting but yeah not a ton of gore although when it is gory it's pretty gory yeah (laughs) that's true and you also have the scene where yet another trope which is grizzled detective eats lunch whilst in mortuary (laughs) (laughs) because he's seen it all before yeah he can just eat a greasy lunch oh yeah (laughs) i mean i thought that scene was pretty wow like they show everything like these are fully naked corpses just uncovered on tables um and it's it's all very yeah procedural they don't shy away at it at all no there are some nice touches like um fingernails scratching across stainless steel tables as the bodies are being moved yes yeah yeah but just before we move off of story and character should we talk about the female character I mean, there's not much to her. <laughs> no, I was really disappointed because she's played by Diane Venora, who's a great actress. And to begin with, it seems like she's this really spiky character who gives as good as she gets with Dewey. She's not impressed with him at all. And then halfway through the movie, she's seemingly so impressed by the fact that he bursts into her apartment with a gun raised and I don't know, protecting her or something that she thinks, okay, I'll pour him a drink and we'll have sex. Yeah. I thought, really? Yeah, Yeah, it was unexpected. Yeah, I mean, she wasn't exploited in it. I mean, the only arse you get to see is Albert Finney's, which I wasn't expecting. (laughs) Through the solarization effect, the wolves are watching. (laughs) The wolves are watching Albert (laughs) Finney's arse. Yeah, I did. I uh, and also because the the sound is heightened as well. The the kissing sounds very wet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now it's time for Random Trivia! So Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia did you find in the rubble of a church today? Right, uh, so Whitley Streber has a podcast 
uh, it's on YouTube, um, called Dreamland. Really? Dreamland podcast. <laughs> and he's been doing it since 1999 with the catchphrase, Dreamland. It's the edge of the world. <laughs> oh, Oh, gosh. Well, Melinda and I have so got competition. Got some competition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, one one last piece of, like, completely random trivia. So every time I see a dog in a movie, I always want to find out what breed that dog is. So in the first scene, there is a dog, uh, and it looks, it looks like a very shaggy greyhound. So I looked it up, and I think it is a, uh, a Russian breed. It's a bozoi, borzoi. Uh, also known as a Russian wolfhound or Russian sighthound. Ah, oh yeah, that's right. The um, the first victims they have their dog with them, but yeah. uh, but before the actual attack goes down, it it hightails it out of there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, at least the dog doesn't die. You know, um, that's good. And that's our trivia. <laughs> So the director, Michael Wadley, this is the only film he's directed that is in the documentary. Mm. He's done a, a Woodstock documentary that's quite renowned. And I also found that he's been a Harvard professor. He's a spokesman for the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Mm. So this movie does make sense on that respect. Nature versus development and ancient creatures versus human population taking over. But his only film, Wolfen. I think the screenwriter, David Iyer, this might be his only credit too. Or it was like no more than three, I don't think, on IMDb. Mm. Anyway, I found that fascinating. Yeah. yeah. In Wadley's case, I think because the Woodstock documentary was so wildly popular, I think it won Oscars and mm. was a box office smash despite being almost four hours long, I believe. I've never seen it. I know it's a cultural touchstone. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either. I mean, no. as a non-American, I think there's maybe a disconnect because it's just not part of my history. Well, I haven't seen it either. Okay. <laughs> okay. Maybe it's a generational thing. Yeah, maybe. But, I mean, because it was such a big thing and it made so much money on such a small budget, I think the budget was like six million and it raked in a lot, the box office, because it captured the zeitgeist of the period. Warner Brothers was quite willing to just throw any amount of money at Wadley to do anything he wanted. He was working on some groundbreaking epic about the American Revolution and it didn't quite get off the ground. But finally, I think it was Orion Pictures went to him and said, we've got a ton of books that we bought the rights to. Which one of them do you want to do? And he said, quote, I picked Wolfen. I didn't like the book, but I liked the premise. I rewrote it as Moby Dick, the horror story, a sugar coating around some serious ecological issues. Before Columbus, there were two hunting tribes in America, two successful animals, Indians and wolves, who respected each other. There were two million wolves here in the 15th century. Now there are 200. At the end of my movie, Albert Finney faces the alpha wolf, harpoon in hand and a chance of blowing him away, but realises a wolf is a creature of nature and the detective is just a chained dog, and that man, not wolf, has formed the unjust society. So that's what he was trying to achieve. He was fired mm. after two years of laboured filming, and he took them to the Directors Guild. He did actually win his case. It was the longest case the Directors Guild had ever arbitrated. 21 days it lasted. But they finally determined that he did have the right to a director's cut that was previewed 
by at least 100 people of a suitable demographic split to judge the possible success of the film. Mm. And he didn't, he got a cut, but he didn't get a preview. So they awarded him some money and he walked away and never really came back to Hollywood again. Mm. Because in his heart of hearts, I don't really think he was interested. He was interested in messaging mm. of getting some thoughts and ideas across but not necessarily interested in being a, a hollywood blockbuster movie maker necessarily right yeah yeah it seems that way so the the book that this is based on is the wolfen by whitley streber who's had a number of books made into movies so the hunger communion and apparently also The Day After Tomorrow was also based on one of his books. Oh, really? Yeah. Which also features wolves in New York. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I don't know about the book, but the movie does. Yeah. I mean, it came out with all those disaster movies coming out, and I just thought, okay, I've seen Deep Impact. I don't see, need to see any more disaster movies. <laughs> oh, I quite like The Day After Tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, it's, oh, okay. it's ridiculous, but I mean, it's got Jake Gyllenhaal, and he just spends the entire movie saying, my dad is coming. My dad is coming. <laughs> that, that's all his character does. That's his arc. And his dad comes, oh. and it's Dennis Quaid. So that's great. That's good. <laughs> I got a soft spot for that movie too. Yeah. And it's got Ian Holm as typical British man who just talks about biscuits and tea as the apocalypse draws in, <laughs> which I love. <laughs> yeah, Whitley Stryber is an interesting character because I think Communion is his autobiographical book about how he's been abducted by aliens a lot. Oh, hell yeah. And the movie features none other than Christopher Walken playing Whitley Stryber. So I want to see that at some point. <laughs> yeah, I've got it actually. Probably down there in the oubliette. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember watching The Hunger. It's got David Bowie in it, directed by Tony Scott. At the time, I felt it was over-theatrical. And it's very of its time, especially with David Bowie. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's an interesting take on vampires. It's very stylish. <laughs> I've been meaning to watch it. Yeah. Going back to Wolfen, I did quite like the attention to sound and the score as well. A lot of interesting approaches to sound from the point of view of the wolf some sort of weird detuning chorus effect on everything the gain was like cranked up as well so things were hyper hyper loud which was an interesting approach what do you think about the sound so i'm not trained in sound i appreciated a gag where Whittington and Dewey are staking out the church. Ah, yes. And uh, they have a parabolic microphone so that they can pick up sounds happening from across the street. Mm. And Whittington opens up a soda next to it, and it nearly blows out his eardrum. <laughs> it sounds like a gunshot. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> In terms of sound design, the thing that I noticed is the score, mm -hmm. which is done by James Horner who, for those who don't know, this was right at the beginning of his career, but he went on to do some very famous scores, uh, probably most notably Titanic. Yeah, I'd also like to pick out that one of the other films that we've done with you, Serge, was Krull, which he also did the score for. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. When I saw Krull, because I looked up his filmography and I saw Krull on there, and I was like, did he score any of the others that I've guest starred on? <laughs> and then I thought, uh, maybe Capricorn 1, but that was Jerry Goldsmith. Mm. Yes, it was. Um, and then the other famous one that James Horner has done is Aliens, mm. which um, I'll go ahead and say now, I thought I was so clever when I was listening to Wolfen, and right when all hell is breaking loose at, in the last reel, I'm listening to the score and I'm like, this is Aliens. James Horner has totally 
repurpose this score and put it into Aliens five years after this one. Mm. And I thought it was so clever. And I go to his wiki page and there's a section on his wiki page about how he would borrow music and repurpose it. <laughs> and and Wolfen and Aliens is on there. Right, right. So that's what I noticed about the score. I was like, you know, this is a good score, but I mean, it's so good he used it twice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he is well known for this kind of thing. I mean, mm. Aliens is kind of a patchwork of all kinds of classical pieces and things that he'd done before. A lot of them from Star Trek Two, which Wolfen resembles a lot as well. I mean, the Wolfen theme is not far from Khan's theme in Wrath of Khan, to be honest. Mm. But in fairness to him, he was writing a replacement score. Yeah. And I think he wrote it in something like five days or something. Uh, yeah, uh, I read 12. 12 days is what I read, yeah. yeah. Right, okay. Maybe it was recorded in five days. Yeah. But it was a breakneck speed, This and this was to replace an original score by Craig Safan, who did the score to The Last Starfighter. Hmm. But this was in a very different style, because Michael Wadley wanted something that was very stylized, so it wasn't the sort of big heroic stuff that he was doing for The Last Starfighter. So I have heard Craig Safan's score. It's very weird. <laughs> okay. Um, tonally would have been a very, very different movie. Sure. I really like James Horner's score in this. I particularly like the sort of noble, elegiac stuff that he does, particularly around the Native Americans standing on top of bridges, whirling strings around over their heads. I don't know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah that thing that he's... um spitting around um i know it as a bull roarer okay and we used to make them in primary school we just okay. tie a piece of string to a ruler and then it would make the same noise it's, it's pretty cool yeah yeah <laughs> it's definitely a thing uh a musical thing it's just uh i don't often see it on top of the manhattan bridge no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the footage they got up there was scary. Oh. There are shots of Albert Finney standing on top of the suspension yeah. part of it rather than the actual bridge. I mean, I wouldn't like to be up there. My knees would go to jelly. Mm. Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah, I have written down in my notes that by far the most tense sequence in the film is when he's having a conversation, but it's on top of the Manhattan Bridge with like no support. Mm. Yeah. And it's supposed to be tense for that reason. They're supposed to be having a semi-innocuous conversation, but he keeps looking down and I'm looking at him and I'm like, I don't remember them being tied to anything. I was getting vertigo mm. just watching it. Yeah. Visually, it is a beautiful film when it isn't doing the animal point of view shots. Mm -hmm. And that combined with this image of New York in a very particular time in its history, I think this is sort of grungy, pre-Disneyfied, pre-gentrified New York. Mm. So it's a little bit grittier and fascinating to look at. And that combined with Horner's score, which has things like he uses the blaster beam which is a big metallic percussion instrument that was used in Star Trek The Motion Picture to depict V'ger. Ah, okay. Is that the thing that sounds like anvil? Yeah. That's what I've got down in my notes. I like the anvil. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit like an anvil and a little bit like an artillery shell. It's a very oh, peculiar wow. instrument. Cool. He uses it on Wolfen, but not on Star Trek. Two, I don't think, which seemed like the logical choice. But anyway, hmm. he uses it when they're sort of exploring the derelict church. Yeah, I mean, it's a very handsome, meticulously made film, and it feels like it's trying to achieve a very particular effect. Mm. But what the director wanted is not what we're seeing because he was taken off the picture and it was re-edited. I think his original cut was four hours. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. Your timestamp search could have been even longer for how long it took them to figure <laughs> out it was a wolf. Well, <laughs> yeah. I quite like James Horner's score in this. 
Mm. Yeah, it was quite experimental almost. Like a lot of extended techniques for the instrument playing, like really high strings, like quite almost overbowed, like very harsh at times, really blasted out brass notes and interesting metallic percussion. And yeah, very atonal, lots of tone clusters and strange harmonies and things going on. I felt it was better than what I was seeing. It's one of those movies where it's, this sounds way better than what the movie's giving me visually, Yeah, especially in the point of view shot. Yeah, yeah. I definitely had the same thought that the score was doing a lot of heavy lifting <laughs> yeah which is also what happened in krull mm. i i recall like remember that mountain climbing scene yep. <laughs> <laughs> that went on for forever it sounded really majestic but you weren't really seeing a lot yeah no just keith marshall in a ridiculous leotard yeah <laughs> actually i think for some long shots it wasn't keith marshall at all. <laughs> right yeah, yeah oh yeah they hired like the best mountaineer in switzerland or something yeah they did and said right put on these stripy black and gray leotards and go for it yeah <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Okay, it's the Mobley Awards. It's where we present our favourite pleasingly tinkly parts of the film in a number of window-smashing <laughs> categories. Best quote. So my favourite quote is an exchange where uh, Whittington and Dewey have been examining the body of the wife uh, in Battery Park, and they're talking about how, look at that, her head was nearly taken clean off, and you still haven't seen any gore or anything. Mm. But then they're they're leaving, and like the coroner's coming in behind them to remove her body. And it's just like a static shot of Whittington, and and he's calling off camera. He's like, hey, careful with her. And you hear one of the coroners go, ah, shit. And Whittington goes, head. <laughs> and then they start bickering. I had, I turned up the sound of my TV. They're bickering. They're like, you pick it up. But I'm not picking it up. <laughs> so that was my favorite quote. Wow. I think I missed that. That's amazing. Yep. Favorite quote, Conrad. So my favorite actually was the banter between the world-weary detective and the accomplished female expert who's brought in. I'm not sure whether she's named in the movie, but her name is Rebecca Neff, and she's played by Diane Venora. And he's this unapologetic conservative with a sticker about God's guns and guts making America great. Yes. And... Uh, She's seen it all before and gives as good as she gets and is not interested in any of his advances. And at one point, I just love this dismissive response because he's talking about having a, a dream about trying to kill a rabbit and failing. And he challenges her and says, what do you make of that? And she just says disinterestedly, something sexual, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> She's just not interested at all. Yeah. And I love it. Best hair or costume? For best costume, I was either going to go with uh, Dewey's tracksuit. Oh, that was mine. He's so shabby. I mean, did he even try to dress that morning? And why, why is he holding the biggest wad of newspapers as well? It's it's just huge. Yeah. He's, he's got his props with him. He's got a, a wad of newspapers. He's got this green sweater, hoodie, and like the red and white striped headband. <laughs> All he needed was a Walkman to complete the look. Yeah. And Dan? Uh, costume for me, I think the best dressed character in this is Whittington, 
played by Gregory Hines. He's just, I mean, my the word to describe him is just super fly. Uh, there's one scene where he's he's wearing like a dark sort of floral shirt with a red turtleneck underneath uh, and then a brown leather jacket over top and brown skinny jeans and just one single dangly diamond earring as well he's just <laughs> amazing i mean wow best dressed coroner ever <laughs> yeah he's pretty cool for a coroner most aces moment i have written down in air quotes the patty hurst stuff which is just one scene where one of their first suspects is this this young woman with like leftist it's in, nothing is stated outright but it's implied that she's like this type patty hurst mixed with jane fonda i guess where she's got like these really leftist politics and she's willing to like hurt people to get her way uh but then they imply that it's all talk that she's just some nepotism baby with a trust fund and too much time on her hands and i don't know i just thought that that recalled a lot of the establishment's take on young women with leftist politics in the in the late 70s early 80s but it's only one scene <laughs> yeah sure 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 yeah it's quite dismissive yeah. uh, mine was actually technology related and it's right at the beginning of the movie and uh, the chauffeur appears to have a keyboard in the in the dashboard of his car. Oh, yes. I'm yes. not sure to what end. <laughs> and what I particularly liked is he's, he just sort of wiggles his fingers over the top I of know. it and doesn't touch them. There's no foley either, so they haven't even tried to fake the fact that he touched it, but still text appears up on screen. <laughs> um, so it's just this idea that computers will somehow be integrated with everything, but it will look sort of like a, a home personal computer I thought that shot was so strange. Like, why isn't he pushing the buttons? And why didn't they... <laughs> yeah, I know. It just doesn't make any sense. Favourite scene! So my favourite scene, probably overall, is when Dewey is... I, I would say he's tracking down a lead, except he has no reason to suspect the Native Americans, but when he goes up to the top of the bridge to sort of, hey, you know anything about these grisly murders? And, uh, and what I like <laughs> about the scene, besides the fact of the location and how it makes the scene tenser than it should be uh, is that the Holt, played by Edward James Olmos, he's totally messing with Dewey. He's like, oh yeah, I shapeshift into a wolf all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which comes back to bite Dewey on the butt when Holt gets to chase him on the beach. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I like that scene. Yeah, he's saying about, oh yeah, sometimes I turn into an eagle. All you have to do is spread your wings and fly. Give <laughs> it, you know, and then unhooks his safety rope yeah. and then just dares him to give it a go. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, it's really terrifying, mm. actually. Um, my favorite scene was Dewey and Whittington going hunting for wolves with their surveillance equipment. It's tense. It's funny mm. because uh, Whittington does a full moon <laughs> for, for the benefit of Dewey's night vision. It's suspenseful and it's climactic because we finally do get to see yeah. a wolf, which is, you know, only 20 minutes away from the movie ending. But, you know, at last. <laughs> mm. mm. uh, Favourite scene for me? I, I quite like the first scene. I, I thought it was a really nice setup for the, the wolf creature. Um, it was quite visceral. I kind of wanted more scenes like that. But yeah, I also like the attention to sound in that scene with the weird sound sculptures. 
the windmill thing and the yeah, the, the sail cool. thing that spins around it, it just added yeah a really nice atmosphere to the whole scene most cliche moment well the black guy dies first that's what i had written <laughs> down yeah yeah <laughs> the black guy literally dies first he really does yes and he's bitten with such force that his hand just rips right off it flies across the room mm. How about you, Dan? <laughs> uh, the, the the fake cat scare. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just ridiculous at this point. Uh, when, yeah, Rebecca goes to investigate her balcony and her cat pops out of nowhere. I mean, granted, there's no huge music sting that goes with it. It's just, oh, cat, meow, and then that's it. <laughs> so, and there's, you know, no tipping over of garbage cans or anything like that. So maybe not as cliche <laughs> as it could have been, but... Uh, yeah, it's pretty cliche. Best special effect. So this movie has a this recurring motif of bodies remaining slightly animate after they die. Oh. Like when they're moving corpses from one table to the other in the coroner's office, like the fingers are still curled around the edge of the table and they gotta mm. like yank them off. But so uh, when the bodyguard's hand is severed, the last shot of that whole sequence is his severed hand lying on the ground gripping a gun and it slowly unclenches the gun. I love uh, that. Which I thought was a yeah. fun effect. <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite effect as well because it was just so subtle mm. and you, it doesn't really happen until right at the end of that shot as well. Yeah. So yeah, it's a really good severed hand that moves. Mm. Mine is more of a practical effect and it's just from the climax of the movie when the wolves teleport to the top of a penthouse. But I'm just impressed that they managed to get these dogs or wolves to jump through glass. Yeah, I don't know how yeah. that... How did they achieve that? I have no idea, but they've got dogs jumping through glass, presumably sugar glass, mm. but I don't know how they convinced them to do it. It's also through the, the mirror blinds as well. I mean, that's... Yeah. Wow. Favourite sound effect. For me, it was the howl, and I think in any wolf movie, you've got to get the howls right and it didn't sound like sort of bog standard stock howling noises they were quite eerie and mm. strange and haunting mm. um so i thought it was great i mean it's still not my favorite wolf howl that has to go to american werewolf in london yeah which i looked it up and john landis says that it's nine different sounds stitched together including a wolf a lion a panther and even a locomotive train so hmm. right 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 <laughs> Right. Um, sound for me, I, I, I loved the, the tinkly wind chimes. I thought they were great. Mm. And and sort of, although ridiculous that the mirror blinds were, they, they had a great sort of wind chimey, tinkly sound as well. Yes. Most funniest moment. The moment I picked is ridiculous. It's, it's when okay. Dewey exits the building after a night of passion with Rebecca. And there's this random guy just on a motorbike kind of pushing it down the street and like wobbling and it doesn't seem to be even the engine's not even going and he just falls over in the middle of the street what did, did you notice though <laughs> whose bike that was no that was the wolf expert's bike uh, right yes. oh wow okay so that was yeah. that was dewey's indication that something was wrong with their wolf expert someone's riding his bike around new york right okay my favorite scene is actually a favorite shot. It's when um, Whittington is in the church and he's like waiting for some killer to emerge. And then the wolf shows up behind him 
and there's a shot from the wolf's perspective, but ironically not changed in any way. But it's just Whittington does this double take that that always makes me laugh. Mm. Uh, he like looks back, sees this wolf snarling at him, head turns back to 12 o'clock, and then, no, 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 I should pay attention to this, and he's back on the wolf. <laughs> and it makes me laugh. <laughs> oh, poor Gregory Hines. Yeah. <laughs> and that's our movies. Yeah. Hi, I'm Bernard Rose, the director of Paperhouse, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Okay, it's final verdict time. Should Michael Wadley's Wolfen from 1981 be set free to roam the earth in all its wolfish majesty, uh, revered by all humanity, or should it be shot on sight and thrown into the depths of the oubliette, erased from the animal kingdom forever? Uh, Serge, yeah, <laughs> you are our guest today, Wolfen. Uh, so... I definitely think the pitch for this movie is better than the final product. Like, I want to remake it. I, I Like, I watch this film, and I'm like, I can fix it. Sure. Uh, <laughs> and, and a lot would have to change. It had good ideas. And it's not even like the execution is bad. It's just, I don't know, sometimes removing a director will just torpedo a project, I guess. So anyway, prefacing my final verdict with the idea that it's an interesting pitch, and there are interesting things going on in there, and I want... A better version of it to exist and even though a lot of people worked very hard on it for years and years there's there's just a better version that could be made and i would put it back into the oubliette it's not even my favorite werewolf film of 1981 sure. um, and so i don't know if if ever i'm gonna i've let every other film i've guest starred on every other film out of the oubliette very enthusiastically i think for this one i'm just gonna let it go back inside wow yeah a first yeah um. oh, yes 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 uh, i i think i would have to agree like i think the main Ooh. two things about this movie that i just hated was yeah the point of view shots were ugly and the reveal was i have to say the the ultimate disappointment I've never been so disappointed <laughs> from a reveal in in the movie a creature reveal ever uh, and yeah, I'm not annoyed that it wasn't werewolves. I did want it to be werewolves, and and the and the DVD cover makes me think it should be werewolves. <laughs> it's called Wolfen. <laughs> At least make the wolves more terrifying, or like otherworldly, or different color or texture or something. I I just wanted a little bit more. I'm gonna have to yeah agree. Back in the oubliette. Well, I think. Um... I, I, I can't disagree with anything you've said. I mean, I watched this as a teenager thinking, yay, I've seen American Werewolf in London. I've seen The Howling. I'm ready for this. Another 1981 werewolf movie. And I didn't get one. And I was very disappointed in the lack of wolf attack scenes or even wolves mm. <laughs> until uh, the final quarter of the movie. As an adult, I'm watching it and thinking there's a lot of interesting ideas in here. I can tell Wadley was trying to do something. I think the two hours that we've got once he was taken off the picture and it was recut 
possibly in a desperate bid to turn it into something that it wasn't, has just resulted in a in a mess that fails to satisfy either camp, really. But that's not to say that there aren't some... I mean, it's a handsome film. I think James Horner's rushed score is beautiful and mm. fascinating to listen to. Cinematography's great. Albert Finney and Diane Venora and Edward James Olmos and Gregory Hines and Tom Noonan are all great mm. actors and they're all great in it. But yeah, the result is just less than the sum of all of those parts. Yeah. So sadly, yes, I would uh, just slide it back in there <laughs> and uh, wish that somebody as talented as Serge remade it at some point. <laughs> yeah. You would you would be under no illusions as to as to who the billionaire real estate developer is based on in my version. <laughs> <laughs> Would he have hundreds of classified documents in his basement? <laughs> That'd be a big subplot. Yeah. But the detective is like, oh, this is definitely terrorism. There are top secret. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. But nope, just ancient wolf spirits. Right. Well, let me just muzzle this thing. <laughs> Back in you go. Well, Serge, it's been amazing having you on the show yet again. It's been amazing to see you throw a movie into the oubliette after having rescued it out of there. <laughs> yeah. You know, it felt um, better than I thought it would. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's been great having you on the show and hearing your thoughts on this movie. Where can listeners find more of your thoughts on movies and other topics? Uh, well, it, honestly, if you follow the movie oubliette, uh, tag on Twitter. <laughs> you'll you'll catch me twice a week or uh, uh, bi-weekly rather uh, tagging you guys and what I think of the film you guys are reviewing. But otherwise, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cold Crash Picks or um, on my YouTube channel, Cold Crash Pictures, which is the primary way that I get my thoughts on film out into the world these days. Yes. Yes. Looking forward to that next essay on the future of cinema. Yeah, me too. I'm eager to see how it comes out. <laughs> yeah, and, and listeners, if you haven't already, check out the panel that Serge and Conrad were on with Bernard Rose talking about Candyman. Uh, really oh, fascinating yeah, yeah. discussion. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> with brief cameo appearance by Tony Todd <laughs> in the yeah. back of a car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And if you want to follow us, we are Movie Oubliette everywhere, Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, you name it, we're there. We always love hearing from you. And yes, you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you are listening to us on. Yes, and if you want to support the show, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can vote on which film we cover next and get access to extended portions of our show. Or for $5, you get to see our exclusive minisodes, which are videos these days, and get access to extended versions of our special guest interviews. Yes, uh, we've also got merchandise on Redbubble, anything you could ever want. <laughs> and uh, uh, also, you can check out our YouTube Page, yes. Serge is currently holding up a mug, one of our mugs. And wearing a shirt. Yes, if, you, yes. if this were a video yeah. podcast, you'd be able to see. Yes. Yes. And his entire room is covered in, in movie oubliette stickers. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> oh my, there is a there sticker. Is a sticker. <laughs> wow. Wow. They do have a sticker, yes. <laughs> you can also check us out on YouTube as well, a bunch of panels. And uh, an upcoming... Video essay, Conrad, that we we hopefully should be releasing pretty soon. 
Yeah, we've got ideas for doing something special for Halloween, but let's see. With this podcast, Minnesota's the relaunch of Dreamland, I think we might be biting off more than we can chew, but we're going to try. We're going to try. <laughs> so, Conrad, what are we going to be doing next episode? Well, Dan, you'll be pleased to hear that we are still in the 80s. Oh, yes. Our next guest uh, picked this movie for us based on having recently read the book. Uh, so it's a, an adaptation of Bram Stoker's second and less well-known novel. It's the 1988 British horror comedy film, The Lair of the White Worm. Oh, wow. That was written by Bram Stoker? It was indeed. Wow. And uh, the the book is absolutely abysmal, <laughs> according to our guest. Uh, so I said, have you ever seen the movie adaptation bizarrely starring Hugh Grant? And <laughs> our guest said no. And I said, well, I think we've got your next appearance on Movie Oubliette picked for us. <laughs> okay. So I am looking forward to that, particularly because this guest has a very infectious laugh. Mm. <laughs> Well, I can't wait. Thanks for listening, everyone. Yes. Thanks to Serge for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie, Juliet. Go on, Dewey. Just flap your arms and jump.